What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 606 with my guest Keith Miller. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about... All the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. But I did cook chicken on basic cable, and some of it was very delicious. That's got to count for something. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Sarawin. And uh, she writes, I love buying popcorn at the movie theater and eating it with my tongue like a lizard on the way to my seat. I could use my hands. I just don't want to. Oh, that is fantastic. I don't think I've ever gone lizard on the way to the movie seat, but I might have to try that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself kind of emo, but definitely fun-sized. And about her depression, she writes, like a dark cloud filling my mind that spews thick, sticky black stuff that, uh, that keeps my brain from working and just making me numb. About her ADD, I live in a house with two other ADHD, uh, ADHD people. I found, <laughs> I found a bowl of cereal in the laundry room. Enough said. Uh, about her anxiety like those wind tunnels uh, that you step into and you grab as much cash or whatever as fast as you can except it's fortune cookie sized papers with everything I'm anxious about even the little things like what am I going to wear today about her hair and skin picking if I pull this one then I won't be as anxious okay maybe just one more okay three but that's all. Thank you for those. From the Ask Paul Anything survey, Patrick asks, would you please, uh, or I, I guess he, it's a suggestion, would you please add your guitar loops in the background of you reading surveys? That was really beautiful and added a huge amount of depth to them that I really enjoy. That means a lot to me. I was very nervous about doing that on last week's uh, episode. I'm glad you liked it. And uh, yeah, I think I'm going to start uh, sprinkling a, a little bit uh, of music underneath things, maybe maybe once per podcast until I'm filled with shame and convinced that I'm a horrible, <laughs> a horrible self-involved person. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything uh, survey. And Kitty, uh, who is a trans man, asks... 
How do you feel about adding trigger warnings on surveys? Is that something that you need or that you would appreciate or use, or is it something that you don't care about? Definitely not something that I don't care about. Um, and I've thought about it in the past. And the only time I really do it is if it's really gra- about something really, uh, really graphic, like worse than the average thing that I read on the podcast. And the reason why I don't normally do any trigger warnings, except for those that are super graphic, is that I would be doing them on pretty much every survey. Because <laughs> pretty much every survey has to do, you know, with death or suicide or you know, assault. And it's, it's, uh, that, that's kind of my take on that. Uh, this is an awful moment survey filled out by a woman who calls herself cats and coffee. And she writes, I was texting with my grandmother at Christmas time as my family always does secret Santa. We'd been discussing what my secret Santa wanted and what I personally wanted as well. We'd wrapped up our conversation and I was going about my day at work when I received another text from my grandmother. Oh boy. I just thought she was going to add something or mention something she forgot. I got the Christmas surprise I wouldn't soon forget. It was a picture of my grandmother's boobs tied up in sheer Christmas ribbon and with an intricate bow and everything. She begged me to never mention it to anyone in my family, especially not my grandfather. Oh my God. I fucking hate that on the iPhone where when you open the text, you go to begin to create a message to somebody and instead it takes you to the last thing that you had written to a completely different person. I'm, uh, I'm grateful that I, I haven't shared anything other than annoying thoughts with uh, the person it wasn't supposed to go to. Uh, Joe asks, I'm wondering if you've considered mentioning the assault of reproductive rights occurring in the U.S. More than half the population lost their right to bodily autonomy on June 24th, and it's causing a mental health crisis for many of us who feel trapped and terrified of what's to come next. I had an abortion as a teenager, and it was empowering and relieving to make that choice. I haven't heard any mention of this nightmare that's unfolding on the podcast, and I'm surprised. Uh, thank you for, for mentioning that, Joe. And yeah, I haven't, I haven't, um, there, there's many things going through my mind about this. Number one, how fucked up it is. Um, and the irony that half of those people that voted, uh, to abolish Roe v. Wade were probably outraged by mandatory vaccine. Um, you know, I can't imagine what it must feel like to be a woman in a state and suddenly there's nowhere to go get an abortion. There's also a part of me that feels like, who are you to weigh in on this uh, as somebody who can't get pregnant? Um, and also I, I, I kind of want to, um, go more in depth into this when I have 
a female guest on. And we did have uh, an episode that we aired, I don't know, maybe it was three, four months ago, and we recorded it right before Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I wish that we had recorded later so we could have addressed it because we talked about abortion a lot uh, in the in the episode. It's such a complicated topic, uh, not the right to it, but in terms of the experience of it from the conversation conversations I've had with women who have experienced it. Um, anyway, the, I hope that makes sense. Uh, broken Record said, uh, writes, Hey, Paul, I've suggested this before. Maybe I didn't word it well, so you misinterpreted the idea, but have you ever thought about switching around the November and December podcasts? So you record them as normal and still take your same break over Christmas, but instead of airing the best ofs in December, you instead air those in November. Then those new shows, you know, new shoes, I'm going to do that. Instead of new shows, I'm going to just put a picture of a new pair of shoes, and hopefully that uh, will help people get through their annoying holidays with their relatives. Then those new shows you would have aired in November, and then you air them in December, if that makes sense. So they would be aired a month after you record them. Um, and, and she adds, this is not as much of a big thing for me now, but I remember a couple of years ago when things were harder that I would have loved new episodes over the difficult Christmas period. Um, I totally get what you're saying, and I'm, I, I will definitely keep that in mind. Um, I, to, to recharge my battery every year, I've, I've started taking July and December off. Um, and I run best of episodes during those, those months. Um, thank you for that suggestion. I will definitely keep that in mind. Uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey, a woman who calls herself, she has huge tracts of land. Is that, is that a Monty Python reference? Um, Whose voice is it that says everyone I know is bizarrely fucked up in their own weird way or something to that effect at the end of every show? That is uh, my friend Greg Barrett uh, from, I believe, the first year of the podcast. That was the first episode that we ever did uh, exchanged fears and loves, uh, myself and a guest. And I love Greg. And it's one of my favorite episodes. In fact, we just uh, re-ran it, I want to say, in the last two years. So... If you want to hear that, uh, and, and I've recorded Greg twice, but that was from the first time that he was on the podcast. We are sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Brain health is a super important topic. Uh, as, I, as I talk about on this episode and other episodes, one of my biggest struggles is, is worrying, and it really helps you know, in addition to support groups and a network of friends, to have a therapist, somebody who is trained uh, in brain health, to be able to bounce things off of, to kind of sometimes reframe what it is that I'm thinking, clarify what it is that my brain's doing. And I'm a big fan of uh, of hers and of better help. Um, 
So, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com mental. That's BetterHelp.com mental. And as I said, I've been using them for years, and uh, I, I think it's a great service. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. I was reading something years ago, and uh, this the woman that wrote this thing was a hospice nurse for years. And she said the biggest regret that people had at the end of their lives was that they worried too much. Think of all the things that we were worrying about five years ago. Do any of them matter today? Traffic jam, going to the grocery store. Somebody was mad at us. Somebody we were mad at. A bill we didn't think we could pay. Dying. Did worrying help? Did it make our lives better? Did it bring us more love or intimacy or push us further from it? Did it help us make the world a better place? Did it bring more meaning and purpose into our lives? Did it help us find peace? Did it help us see all the beautiful things that are around us every day? All the things that we've never really stopped to see, no matter how mundane, a wall. Think of the life of the person that built it. Did they ever suffer? Did they ever struggle? Did they ever want to give up? What made them laugh? What scared them? What comforted them? Did anyone ever break their heart? Did they ever fuck up? How'd they handle it? Every single one of us is afraid. Every single one of us has regrets, has wronged someone, has made an embarrassing mistake, let someone down, broke a promise, failed spectacularly. Every single one of us has not wanted to be alive. And the fact that we worry about these things means that we're sensitive human beings who want to be loved and feel safe. That's a gift. It means we have a conscience and a soul. It means we're not psychopaths. It means we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. And maybe, 
just maybe, it means we need to lighten the fuck up and stop taking ourselves so seriously. And then finally, this is from the uh, Awful Some Moments survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Weird Butt. And she writes, a few years ago, I was traveling internationally for work. I'm a geologist, and my sites are usually in the middle of nowhere at semi-permanent field camps. On my second day on site, I noticed a weird new thing on my butt. I had no way to see it, so I snapped a photo with my phone inside a porta potty I continued to monitor it throughout the workday work via phone photos as it grew and became increasingly painful and swollen to the point where I could barely stand without being in incredible pain. It ended up being my first hemorrhoid. I spend most of the late afternoon on the phone with my doctor and then my boss arranging for me to leave site because I was in too much pain to work. My scheduled flight was four days later because of COVID restrictions, so I was stuck with my throbbing butt in a hotel room. You know how smartphones do that thing where you take a bunch of photos one day and they make a slideshow out of them? Well, I was quarantining in my hotel. I realized there was a slideshow of that day. Curious, I hit play. Immediately, this really jazzy, upbeat music started playing as the photos faded into each other. A flower, some rock samples, my butthole, a beautiful mountain, three images of my worsening butthole, my co-worker waving at the camera, some field notes, our lunch that day, my now un- unrecognizably horrific-looking butthole. It was both beautiful and horrific, and I couldn't look away. The automatically generated name of the slideshow? Special Day. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside you're in the right place. I'm here with Keith Miller, who is a licensed clinical social worker based out of Maryland. Uh, I was a guest on your podcast a couple of months ago. Uh, Keith has a, a podcast called The Soul of Life Show, and I had such a good time talking to you. And you're so passionate about the the topic of mental health. I was like, if you ever get to LA, man, we gotta we gotta record. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad you invited me. Thank you. I had a great time with that too. I, I listened to that a few times. Yeah, and uh, it's one of my favorite uh, conversations. And I got to say, the, the feeling's mutual because, I mean, uh, you are doing some work that I think there, there's, and we should talk about this. Like, there's obviously professionals like me that are doing this, and you bring a lot of those people in and, and bring the subject to life. But uh, I think it's overrated. I, I, 
like the professional gig of mental health. I mean, how, how so? I, and this leads right into the topic that we're probably going to talk about du jour, which is, you know, depression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but like for me, having 20 years in the business, it is a, it is a business. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, that's the reason my, the podcast that I do is called the soul of life. It has nothing to do with the business. Right. Right. And so after doing it, you know, the business of psychotherapy and uh, let's just say the business of healing, there's a point at which I, I didn't realize until, um, until it just knocked me down that something in my body was protesting about doing this, about charging people money to give them something which really used to be free, right, which is connection and belonging and love, right, or should be free in a family, in a community, right? Um, so something that, that – that's a trailhead for me as it relates to why I – when I sit down in my therapist chair, um, n- not other places. Like I can do music. I can do the podcast. I can do uh, – you know, I'm getting into aviation now. I'm doing lots of cool things. Um, but when I sit down in my chair across from somebody and go through you know, the routine, right? It's like the back of my hand now. Some part of me protests and says no, right? And so I've ignored that for I don't know how many years, maybe 10. <laughs> no to what? I don't want to help. I don't want to be here. I, 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 I want, I'm, I'm somewhere else. Are you burned out? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that's a topic that I think we use the word burnout often because we don't want to say the word depressed. Right? That's just my opinion. Uh, burnout can be everybody has burnout right uh, washed out burned out but uh, yeah yeah and so as as uh, in the healing professions it's a real double it's a double whammy you're in this place because you're successful because you're good at giving and providing but but yet at the same time even if you've become mature as I think I have over the years at recognizing boundaries right and recognizing this is a profession I'm not really here I'm not your father I'm not your brother um and it's you know cut and dry it's not like i stay up at night thinking about you know issues that people are bringing in when i sit in the chair i kind of you know there's a there's a deficit there's a sense of like i actually could have i could use this more than i could give does that Mm -hmm. make sense makes total sense yeah i often wonder uh you know because i i do this podcast i go to support groups and the thought of you know, working in a rehab or being a therapist, I'm like, that would drain my battery. Yeah. And yet yeah. I know therapists who just have endless passion right. for it. Right. Um, so do you, do you think it's that you are burned out by the profession itself or your depression is sapping your vitality? Uh, that's a good, <clears throat> that's a great question, Paul. I mean, the, which comes first, right? Right. You know, the, the, the chicken or the crying. <laughs> right. Yeah, both. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so the, does, does, do, does the anhedonia, loss of interest in like things that normally br- bring you pleasure, um, uh, yeah, does that happen before um, the effects? You know, after a day of feeling like, uh, you know, de- detached from things, mm-hmm. well, that, will, well, that will sap you also, right? Right. So. 
Yeah, the, what I've come to realize is the bottom line is it doesn't matter where it started. It's about waking up to the idea that it's happening. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm going down. I'm feeling down. I am down. I am <clears throat> not here. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm disoriented. What are the other words we can use, right? Um, and acknowledging it and telling the truth to yourself. So, yeah, I've been on that journey, as I know you have, and that's mm -hmm. what I appreciate so much about what you're doing is you're you're bringing into people's – I mean, I, I love the, you know, the questions you ask people. Like, they come – you know, they're at some point in their career. It's probably helpful for them to talk on a podcast. And every time, pretty much, I think you ask the question, well, like, so where did you grow up? Well, who, what was your father like? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're like, uh, do I have to tell you? Like, this is like what a therapist asks. Right. How do you feel right now as I ask you these questions? <laughs> I learned that by being in therapy and realizing, oh, I'd had a blanket yeah. over this thing that I had just thought, oh, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... What I think is so valuable about therapy is it helps you uncover stuff. Yeah. You know, somebody who has never experienced therapy thinks that they're going to go in and somebody's going to tell them how to live life. Right. And it couldn't be further from the truth. No. Right. At least with a good therapist. Y yeah, exactly. It's not about advice. It's about, in my view of it, you could, maybe you, you could share your experience, but is, it's about how do you show up here? Like what's happening for you right now and looking at that in different strata. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you know, we think we're, we're able to be orientated to what we are doing and what is happening next and the narrative and sequence of, of our life. But when you have a trained person asking you questions about, well, how do you know, you know like this, this thing you just said, you know, you think there's going to be a problem with your career or whatever. How do you know that? What do you mean? How do I know that? So it stops you. It stops you from repeating and recycling these tropes that you have in your head, and you actually have to talk to yourself and say, "Well, who said that? Yeah. Where did this idea just the come the from?" The crystal ball. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the broken, broken crystal ball. <laughs> the amount of energy we waste in our lives, future tripping. Yeah, future tripping. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. I think I think of what you just said, future tripping. I, what comes to mind for me is anxiety, mm -hmm. like getting ahead of ourselves, getting over our skis, or you know, you know, before something happens, we're there. Do you think there are people out there that future trip who experience joy from future tripping? Oh, Maybe flashes of it, but I've got to imagine that it immediately comes back to doom. Uh, <laughs> that's a good point. I don't think they would say that. Right. I don't think you'd get them to admit. If somebody enjoys anticipation and 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 planning, and there are people like yeah. that love managing life, right? Meticulous, you know. We you know, this brings me back to thinking about aviation, right? Because you, there's checklists for your checklists. <laughs> Thank God, right? Because you need that redundancy. But if your life is a checklist. And you're, and you're going through checklists because you planned it, and that's where you have to be because you planned it. What the fuck, right? Where's the joy? Where, where's, the in, where's the spontaneity, right? right. So, and yet some of it is good. Absolutely. And, and I think that 
brings up the topic of moderation, yeah. which is so hard for for a lot of people. Right, right. Yeah, mod- moderating, right? So if you have a part of you, and I do, I have a strong part of me that's a, it's a, like a type A sort of manager. You know, my family, my, my brothers, my, my, fa- my mother and father, um, are, is one of the most loving families that I could ever be, you know, grateful to be born into. I, I, that's, that, that's the absolute truth. And we're all type A driven people, which means, uh, each of us has at times disregarded uh, our connection to the other person and to reality in favor of like just getting shit done. That's what it means. Like we're, we're going to get this done. I don't care, you know, how it, how you feel. When I was a kid, and in, in my talk, we talk about this with our dad. He's eighty years old. We talk about this now, and we and we joke and we talk openly about it. I, I left the tr- the church. Um, when I was, at, well, I, I went to school to study theology, and it was after that I'd sort of crossed that bridge, and then I realized, uh oh, I'm on a road I don't want to go down here. I don't. This doesn't feel right to me. This feels claustrophobic and incestuous, and in some real weird way, fucked up. I turned around on that road, became a social worker, and so that was that was a hallelujah moment for me. What do you mean when you say incestuous? In what way? In that the 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 belief systems are recycled, right? They're handed down without question. They're they're they're, they're not. There's no diverse, diversity of thought um, in a religious in a conservative religious community is not valued. Conformity, uh, loyalty to the the belief to, right. to God, that's valued. If you deviate from that, you're not just bad. You're evil. You're evil, right? And so, anyway, we talk, we 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 joke a bit about my, especially my brother. He's he's a he's a trip. He's very funny. One of my one of my brothers, and he, you know, joke about like we had to get up. So we had a paper route in the morning, and they joke. They're older than me. They had they had a longer paper route mm-hmm. <laughs> than I did because I was the youngest. And my dad helped me, but you know, Sunday morning, we're doing a, the paper route. And before we go to our job at the golf course to rake sand traps, and then we go to church. That's Sunday morning. That's the day when you like can un- right. unwind and like just do what kids want to do. So we had that um, pressure on us, and so you know, I I think in a lot of ways, my anytime I'm dealing with emo- my own emotional system, my parts, it always comes back to f- to feeling compressed into and pushed into that box of if you don't obey God, your life's over. And so... Were you raised Catholic? Baptist. Baptist. Which is... Punishing God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 The walking on eggshells God. Walking on eggshells. And we had a... I still have to say this. I still love the people that taught me. I still love those people. And they're in my life and they're... they're um, deep friends with with our family we had a we had a pastor who who wasn't the yeah wasn't the isn't not is not the 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 image of the the wrathful god he's a loving man and also um you know limited in in a way in that sense that love only fits love only comes from god 
And and when I worked in the city, when I worked with homeless people and when I started working with people who were addicted, they were schizophrenic or bipolar, unmedicated, untreated, and using crack every day, I started to wake up to the idea that, that God, that, you know, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> you know, there's no, what I have to do to love these people who are, are desperate for love is that it has nothing to do with teaching them about God. Like the words, it's beyond words. It's beyond, so, so this is what gets me back to the idea that, well, yeah. well but just hold yeah. on for one second. Would you say that it's about carrying the principles that you believe your God stands for? Yeah. But because to me, that's what spirituality is, is spirituality is an action. Belief is great. Right. But if you can't connect to principles, that's the only time I feel God is when I'm living a principled life. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me more about that. So can you say more about what, what that means for you? Uh, meaning and purpose. Yeah. It used to be my God, even though I thought, yeah, one maybe exists, but he just kind of rolls his eyes when he mm-hmm. thinks of me. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then when I had to get sober— and my life depended on changing my view and taking actions every day that got me out of myself, mm-hmm. I discovered the relaxation I was looking to drugs and alcohol for, I found from feeling meaning and purpose. It quieted that voice in my head that's like the, you know, the clicking top, uh, ticking clock on 60 minutes that's what every day felt like like i am three steps behind the universe i'm not where i'm supposed to be i need to catch up i've blown it i fucked up i'm a terrible person and i found that when i was taking the principled actions that had been suggested to me by people in the support groups you know showing up on time you know being kind, patient, apologizing, looking for what my part is when I'm resentful. Accountability. I'm, accountability. Yeah. A lot of these things. I've been taught in kindergarten, but I'm like, man, you know, I don't need them. I just need to get ahead because that's where safety yeah. lies. Yeah. But when I discovered these principles, that was the door yeah. that I accessed a feeling of something in my life that calmed me down. Yeah. And yeah. so that, to me, is my form of spirituality. It's not about worship. It's about action. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That really resonates with me, Paul, that that once we deify something or make it sacred and have to worship it, have to, right, like, or, or else what, right, right? then then it's it's no longer, well, it's, it's now all of a sudden gotten very heavy, mm-hmm. right? So to me... And frankly, this is why I still connect deeply with a lot of the teachings that I was, you know, I practically had the Bible memorized, right? The Christian Bible. A lot of it's so good. A lot of it is light and love and peace and, 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 and um, freedom. And so, but the minute we have to, I have to say, well, you, but you, this is how you do freedom. <laughs> this <laughs> is how you do love. Yeah. Um, then all of a sudden it gets like, whoa, man, like what What are we into here? What but, are we afraid of? And how much of that, though, is the people interpreting the Bible yeah. as opposed to – I'm, I'm yeah. not yeah. very familiar yeah. uh, with the Bible. It makes a terrific coaster, but <laughs> I've not really delved into it. 
Uh, from what I know of the teachings of Christ, that seems to be the heart of the spirituality of yeah, absolutely the, the Bible. Absolutely, yeah. The spiritual. I mean, there, there's you know mystical traditions in every religion, and so the mystical meaning spiritual, and not so focused on uh, you know the order in which we attain that higher place, but that God is a mystery. And you know, and I dig that a lot, and and that that's what you know, uh, our you know our kids. We have a fourteen and a sixteen year old, and and we talk. I talk a lot. And they ask a lot of questions about you know my. I was in a Christian rap group, Paul. Oh my god! <laughs> so they have questions. Oh my! They have god, questions. You're that guy. I, I was one of those kids, and so it was. Um, yeah, it was such an important part of my life. It was the center that, of everything that we orbited around. And yet in a Baptist church, um, uh, agreeing to let these kids, us, do rap, that actually was nonconformist. That was actually a crack in the armor. Um, and were there protests? No, no. They were they were gr gracious and, and open and loving. And, you know, they were like, we don't know what this is. This is weird. Um, but go ahead and do it. They were encouraging. And that was the beginning of me sort of being able to beat my own drum and say, okay, I, I, I'm going to take, you know, I want to stay connected to you because you're my source of everything, food, <laughs> sustenance, meaning. So I have to stay connected to you, but I got to get away from you also. And that was you know, starting the rap group was the first iteration of that in my life was like, how can I do both things. Take care of myself and make sure you're happy. So and that developed more and more, and I you know, eventually left the church and no longer consider myself a, a religious Christian. But um, you still believe in God? I think I think the words "believe in God" are difficult. <laughs> How would you phrase it? <laughs> the, it yeah, belief or non-belief? Can you can you start with? There might be something. I don't know, right? And so, the not knowing is more appealing to me than knowing now. And and the comfort that I have in not knowing, I wouldn't call that God. You know, it's something very different. But it is it is to me it is it is what maybe people would say is God. Um, my sense of comfort with um, the practice, like you said, the, the practices and principles of letting go. And, um, oh, yeah, that, that more than anything is what has taken the place where God used to be for me, mm -hmm. where I used to follow steps and sort of recycle certain things. Mm -hmm. Now it's about the letting go and the not knowing. It used to be, I know this, and I got to tell tell you what I know, and I got to share it with you and evangelize. Now it's about, if anything, um, it, it, when I'm stuck with something, it's about falling back into um, a, a trust with not knowing. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, and uh, I I do not know for sure whether there is something. Maybe I'm fooling myself into feeling that sense of relaxa relaxation and being able to, to let go 
and that future trip and right. not get into my you know unprincipled action based out of fear or not wanting to sit with with pain uh I, you know there's there's um some people say god is everything or god is nothing i'm not so sure about that you know I believe that when I feel God, I feel, or, or whatever you want to call it, yeah. you know, my higher self, love, wherever love comes from in the universe, um, I I feel that that is real. But I also, you know, look at kids that are starving and people say, well, there's a greater picture. Okay, maybe there is, but isn't it also possible that there's a dark force as powerful at work, if you if you look at our planet, I mean, there's some support for that argument. But you know, I love that Indian, uh, or I'm sorry, Native American, saying that uh, there's two wolves inside of us. Yeah. You know, and the kid asks, um, you know, well, which wolf wins? And they say, whichever one you feed. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I, I've been an IFS teacher for almost 20, oh, 15 to 20 years What's now. What's IFS? So internal family systems therapy. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a mode of therapy. But IFS has become kind of a gold standard now in trauma treatment. Uh, ever since Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, um, put it in one of his chapters. It was a thing before that, and I was involved in training and, and learning that for many years. Bessel's book came out, and I interviewed Bessel on my show. It was a great honor to speak with him. Um, because he's such a legend in the field of trauma and, and helping people and in research in the brain. Mm-hmm. So IFS is this idea that we all have parts and we are multiple. And that's natural. That's normal. The old school of psychiatry and psychology is that um, we are cohesive and we, have a, we, we should have a singularity of mind and singularity of thought. So if somebody's schizophrenic, um, or uh, on the range, on the spectrum of a mental illness, and they, and some parts of them are either disorganized, and you're seeing all these flashes, multiple personality sort of flashes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not normal. We ought to we ought to get rid of that and fix it. Mm-hmm. In IFS, we approach things with curiosity and compassion. And if something seems out of place, we say, "Hmm, wonder where this came from. Where's it trying to go?" So IFS is really been on the subject that we're talking about, like with spirituality and God. Um, The idea that there is a center point for all of us, it really is backed up with neurobiology. It's it's not quite executive function. When Dan Siegel, and I talked to Dan Siegel, who's a neurobiologist, uh, professor of neurobiology at UCLA, Um, he has spent a career talking about this idea that the brain is more than just the flow of energy and information. That's the scientific description of the brain, you know, what's going mm-hmm. on with electricity. But there is something going on in our brain that's deeper and higher. And whether we call that God, I, you know, or, or executive function, I mean, that that's so when you ask me, do I believe in God? I, y- yes. But in, in a neurobiologically informed way. Oh, that's interesting. Way, yeah. Um, and that we all have that. And, and it's it's cool that science is now looking at that and asking some of these questions that it used to be only this the the religious texts had dealt with. 
scientists are now saying like, wait, there's something quantum going on in the brain, meaning they have this language, the quantum language in quantum physics that ne is neither this nor that. It is something other and above. Well, spiritual people have always been talking about something other and above. Mm -hmm. So I think it's cool that those things are meshing together. And I've asked Dan, I've asked, and he's a scientist. He's a really hard, hardcore scientist. He resists the idea that there's, you know, this, this is like some big spiritual thing. But I've asked him, I was like, have you noticed that? He's like, absolutely. Yeah. The trend in our field is towards um, openness in the scientific field, is towards openness towards the unknown. So it's trending towards this more spiritual. Well, they say thing. that physics departments are filled with people that believe. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think it has to be. You try to ask them in public, though, which I've done with like somebody yeah. like John Mather, who's the chief scientist at NASA for the James Webb Space mm -hmm. Telescope. I asked John. I was like, "So, John, do you ever, you know, you spent a career studying the stars, astronomy? Do you ever like wonder, like, what's driving this?" He's like, "Well." No, I just try to go get data. <laughs> and, and do you feel like he was being? I think that's true, but I think there's another answer there that that as a scientist, it's hard to give publicly when you're yeah. still practicing science. I, I imagine that's difficult because um, they they have an image to keep up and. Academia seems a bit like you, you don't want to let your guard down because yeah. so much of academia is people just sitting around criticizing yeah. each other and picking somebody's thing apart. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's for sure. It's hard to take risks. I mean, and I wonder what you think about this because you talk about a lot about comedy and your career in stand-up, and when you talk to younger comedians, right, they're asking, I, I love how you're challenging and bringing up these questions about, like, can you be vulnerable uh, on stage? And, uh, I mean, granted, I think scientists don't have a room full of drunk people as their audience. <laughs> but you got to go to certain colleges for certain, that one. Certain colleges might have that. Um, but... Do you think it's possible? I mean, what's your experience? Because you've you've when you started this show, it's my understanding was that that was a a transition for you out mm -hmm. and and maybe away from that. Um, what's the word? I used the word incestuous earlier, but you know, tra traumatizing. Like, is it traumatizing to be like ha having to be vulnerable in front of people who aren't being vulnerable? Yeah. Oh, traumatizing isn't the word that I would use, but it's uh, anxiety-ridden. Yeah. Some comedians, it's not, and I envy them. Uh, comics that can s just bomb and stick to who they are. I always go to the pandering card when when I was that guy. Yeah. And I look back sometimes at some of the material that I did, and I cringe. And uh, I have... It's it's a struggle for me to have compassion for the comedian that I was doing the best that he could. Yeah. Some of the stuff I did, I'm proud of, but a lot of it makes me cringe. But I have to accept that that's where I was. At that I was a uh, sick person looking for love, mm -hmm. and this was the best way I knew 
how to how to do it. And it's not like I'm no longer a sick person. I'm healthier mm -hmm. than I was. And sorry to harp on the, the soapbox about getting sober, but it was a really pivotal moment in my life because yeah. I had to begin to start feeling my feelings. Yeah. And I also began to feel connection. And connection, uh, I felt like, oh, maybe my creativity um, could be better served fostering conversations that have humor in them, but also vulnerability. And I didn't think when I started that, that I was going to do it instead of comedy. I thought this would feel like an interesting thing to do and might help people. Never imagined I would make a penny yeah. doing it. Um, but I began to feel like, you know, we talked about that feeling that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. I got that feeling almost immediately. And the TV show I was working on um, was canceled six months after I started the podcast. And I just felt like the universe was saying, here, this door is open. This is the next chapter of your life. Yeah. And like you feel sometimes when you're at work, I was feeling that way with stand-up. There would be moments when it would be fantastic, but they were the minority. Most of the time, I was tired of airports. I was lonely in hotel yeah. rooms, and I just wanted to be home. Yeah. So that's how, that's how it started. But as I began doing it, I realized this is the stuff I wanted to talk about in my stand-up, but never was confident enough to be vulnerable. Right. I had tried here and there, but it didn't get a big enough laugh. And yeah. I couldn't sit through that. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be so hard to combine those two genres, right? I'm th just trying to think off the top of my head. Are you like, are you familiar with Brene Brown? And, yeah. And oh, her, she's or, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So she talks about this this difficulty, like as a lecturer, as a uh, you know a researcher, bringing up the subject of shame in a room. Nobody like everybody leaves the room. Nobody will show up at that conference. Now she's done it in some miraculous way because of her charisma, and I think, and some small part to Oprah Winfrey. But she could talk about anything nowadays, and people would fill it's an auditorium. Amazing. It's amazing. So the this the idea in this this makes me want to share about um, DBR. This thing that I I started to do in some therapy, you know, myself. I found a therapist who was doing IFS, which is something I'm familiar with. But but he started doing something with me called DBR, Deep Brain Reorienta Reorientation. And after like two or three sessions, like I said to him, Terry, what are you doing? And he described it. So then I got trained in DBR. But so this idea – so and I bring up Brene Brown for, because the idea of combining um, – something pleasurable with something difficult, right? So how do we turn towards our fear? Well, most of the time we're afraid of our fear. We're terrified of our terror, for example, or angry at our anger or something like that. Right. <laughs> so we, how do we uh, move towards, how do we get that circuitry in the brain that is motivational and uh, attachment-based, moving towards something, going, when it relates to something difficult and painful, because that's what gets us out of depression. Can I turn towards my anger and listen to it? Well, it immediately changes the anger. 
it, you know, when somebody's listening versus somebody resisting and opposing, now you've got a a flow going. So DBR is this is this approach which allows it's Frank Corrigan. People listening who are interested in this should just look up Frank Corrigan and DBR, and your 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 head will swivel when you start reading the stuff he writes because it's pretty advanced neurobiology stuff. But if you can track some of it, um, the gist of it is that there's this mechanism in the brain, particularly the brain stem, that we're not recognizing is active all the time. And it's our orientating uh, impulse, what he calls orientating tension. So if there was a loud noise, Paul, in the, in the next room, both you and I would do this. Our heads would move mm-hmm. immediately. And that's because of this orientating tension, and it's not conscious. Um, and so if I ask you a question like, Paul, like, um, can you think about your mother for 10 seconds? Right? And then I ask you, okay, the thought comes up, you imagine your mother or some other potentially stressful or difficult you know, stimuli. And now my next question is, what do you feel in, in your face, in your jaw, in your eyes, and especially the back of the neck? And you might say, I don't really feel anything. I'm just thinking about, you know. Hmm. I'll say, stay with that. And eventually you begin to notice the tension, and it, stuff starts to happen here. In your face. In the face, in the eyes, in the jaw. Because the sequence of firing when we're stressed is that this orientating tension, especially the, the neck movement, eye movement is, is like a close second. Like the, the head swivels, the eyes start to move towards the thing. And it's unconscious. But as, you, as somebody carefully tracks that with you, and I might say, well, you know, I just noticed your you know, right cheek. You know, put your hand there and you feel that. And you just mm-hmm. slow down. All of a sudden, this uh, openness in the, in the body, the physiology, starts to emerge. So instead of there being an antagonistic relationship with your emotions, there becomes a, a, a resonance with them. So that's kind of where we're blocking yes. our emotions. Exactly. Wow. All here. You hear people say this, uh, or you know, they, they get emotional. What do they say? I'm choked up. Right. And you, you see them struggling to take a, you know, to swallow mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. That's not an accident, right? There's this system that turns on that disables right. speech. Right. Yeah. And like when you feel shame, you feel it in your face. You feel it in your head. Yeah. Like this weight. And your, 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 your back wants to kind of arch and go into a hole, right? So this is about slowing down at those moments and having some, you know, you know it's like people have maybe heard about brain spotting, no, this is brain spotting on steroids. This is um, DBR on steroids. This is any of the other three-letter acronym therapies mm-hmm. on steroids because it, it really goes, and Frank articulates this brilliantly, it goes right to the source, which is the brainstem. All the other therapies, even IFS, which I love, is uh, midbrain, limbic system, or a little bit cortical. And that's late in the sequence of neurological events. It's late. This stuff, the midbrain emotions and the cortex thoughts, that stuff sits on top of what? The brainstem and the orientating tension. If, if we're disorientated here because what happens in loud noise, I don't know if I should run in there or run away. Mm-hmm. And so that disorientating, you know, two things are happening at once. I'm stuck. 
And once we begin to slow down, we recognize, wait a minute, shoot, two things, three things. I'm feeling three like uh, survival mechanisms kick in. That's confusing. All right, well, we just let that happen. Sit there. All of a sudden, the tears start to come. The face starts to relax. You know, the voice comes. And the thoughts are clearer. So, you know, that that's... When I did three sessions of DBR and then, then did the training, it was out of that, Paul. It was only like the second session. I, I touched on something in my core that said, why don't you fly airplanes? Wow. Yeah, it was like it touched on this little kid inside of me, which I'm familiar with from doing some work in, in therapy before. But it just the the physicality of this stuff that that Terry was doing with me, um, it just became crystal clear. Like you know, you're ready for that. You can do it. You why haven't you trained to become a pilot? It's something you've wanted to do. You've never spoken that to anybody. So I started speaking about it to people. <laughs> scaring the shit out of myself going up in airplanes (laughs) so now i'm you know i've started my training in in small little piper warrior airplanes (laughs) wow so it's crazy you talked about the the eyes moving is is that one of the things you think uh helps uh, emdr yeah yeah her um the EMDR work also, Frank, would I think say um, clearly that this uh, DBR work acts at a deeper level than EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, um, which is fantastic. EMDR is, is a revolutionary technology in therapy um, because you don't go in and sit down and – I mean you do a little talking, right? But then the therapist just says follow. Basically it's sort of a – it's a hypnotic induction mm-hmm using the eyes to move back and forth with light or with your finger. And then all of a sudden people like just no words are being spoken. All of a sudden the emotions start. You just start Mm -hmm. to feel a like shedding skin happens. The layers start to come off the armor. And the exhaustion afterwards is so profound. After one session, I slept for almost two days. Yeah. And then the next time I played hockey, I felt like all my joints had been oiled. Yeah, that's amazing. That that's amazing. So the, yeah, this has this is working at that level, and then and then some. Because we don't really spend a lot of time talking when somebody's doing a, DM, uh, a DBR induction. There's a little there's a moment at the end where you might say, do you, you, do you see yourself any differently now? So we do ask for the cortex to come back mm-hmm. and you know kind of analyze what's going on here. But mostly it's just about following, and the prompts we give are. Okay, slow that down. Well, I feel something in my stomach. Okay, go go right before you felt something in your stomach. What was there? And and that question, what was right before you felt the heat in your throat or the pit in your stomach? What was right before that? You know, there's like a blank spot and you can see it come over people. They're like, uh, nothing. And I'm like, yes, right there. Stay there in the blank spot. And like, so what I'm offering and what we offer at that moment is a attachment to the unknown, a safe attachment, secure, maybe mildly pleasant. Like, mm-hmm. I, 
I don't know either. Why don't you stay there and let's find out? So we're getting that uh, little bit of dopamine going, which we need for difficult things. Um, and the person's able to tolerate the terror of that overwhelming emotion, which is often fear and shame, right? So without feeling terror anymore, it's just like, oh, we're moving slow enough now that I don't have to... I don't have to bolt out of the room. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to perform. And then it clears. This this disorientation clears. And like you said, you feel like oiled and like loose and mm -hmm. it's like open. So I'm hoping that's what I'm going to do ketamine this week. I'm, I'm starting yeah. ketamine treatment, Paul. Yeah. Um, Hold that thought for one second. Yeah. It occurred to me as you were talking uh, about this, it feels like the last... You know, half hour that we've talked about spirituality and these different modalities the the word that just keeps popping into my head is curiosity curiosity yeah yeah and what what a powerful tool exactly. that is especially when we're feeling stressed out or an emotion that we don't want to exactly. feel yeah. and you think about the things like you saying i want to fly uh yeah that it I'm curious about what that feels like to fly a plane. Right. I was too. <laughs> I, you know, I, I often say I think one of the greatest things you can be born with is a natural curiosity. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reading the, the, a book by uh, David McCullough right now. It's, it's called The Wright Brothers. Holy shit. Those guys. I mean, you know, we go up in these planes. They are well known. Like they are they're not bulletproof they fail right. and people die um but they are they're really good performing planes solid in the air and and forgiving they're like you know the rubber ducky in the bathtub you push it over the wind it hits a yeah. turbulence it comes back up without really doing a heck of a lot it's actually hard to crash them um and so uh the wright brothers built their own freaking plane insane and got in them and got in them yeah it's it's insane. And that they lived. Yeah, they did. That's the yeah. most am amazing, amazing thing. You, you spoiled it. I, I forgot whether they died in a plane crash or, or not. maybe I they did. I don't know. Maybe they did. I'm not at that part. Yes. I just finished the part where the first, they took up passengers. Like the, the They were ignored for like five years. Everyone was like, ah, you're bluffing. You can't do this. And then all of a sudden the press got involved and they had some significant demonstrations. Now they can't keep up can't keep people out of the airfield. There are 10,000 people showing up just to see if they're going to fly. And everybody wants to go up. And a few people in the military are going up with them. And they had their first crash. And uh, this guy, Lieutenant Selfridge, dies. The first fatality in an aircraft. You know, fell from 75 feet. And I think it was Orville that was really badly hurt. Like mm -hmm. broke all of his bones, broke his ribs, broke his leg. But yeah, they're doing that. So yeah, curiosity is such a big, for me, curiosity is the cure. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like what goes on in the back of my head is, can I afford to be curious? Like I've got to f sustain my business, which is about providing a, a linear th service to people, mental health mm -hmm. business. Can I afford to innovate and like, you know, and so that's a practical question. You know, can you afford to take flight lessons? It's expensive, right, to do that. So 
the answer has to be things have to be in order in order to get this get off the ground. But yeah, the the metaphor of flying is is not lost on me. Um, there's just you know getting altitude, gaining perspective, mm-hmm. um, going leaving home, right? Wanting to get away, but also coming back home, wanting to come home, wanting to be safe on the ground and lining up. <laughs> All of those. So that's what goes through a therapist's mind when they're trying to learn how to fly an airplane. Have you watched uh, the Netflix series Love, Death, and Robots? No. There is one episode. It's from season three. Uh, and, and they're short episodes. They're like you know anywhere from five minutes to 12 minutes long. <clears throat> and there's one called Night of the Mini Dead. And uh, I, I won't tell you any more uh, about it. It, it, but you talk about a perspective. It it's super dark, and it made me laugh out loud through the whole thing, especially the ending of it. So, anybody listening, check it, check it out. It just helped me take myself and my worries so much less seriously yeah. because it just showed the the silliness of the whole of humanity. Right. Um, anyway. To ketamine. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast before. Um, I tried it. It it did not work for me. My psychiatrist uh, said that's because you have treatment-resistant uh, depression. How many doses did you do? I think I did five yep. sessions yep. and did and didn't feel any lasting effects. And they were space, spaced out like twice a week or something. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, many people I know, it has a profound effect on them and is incredibly helpful. Uh, so what are you thinking yeah. as you go into doing this? What's it going to look like, yeah. et cetera? Yeah, I mean, so... And this is for your depression. This is for my depression, yeah. This right. is not just for recreation. Right. <laughs> And that needs to be that needs to be said. I was talking to somebody. We went into an art exhibit. We were visiting here in L.A. We went to the Last Bookstore, uh, which is a cool, really cool place in downtown. And there's an artist there. We got talking, and he talked about his recovery and that sort of thing. And he's he's like, well, and I mentioned ketamine mm-hmm. and, and how it's transforming and, and should be transforming ERs, suicide admissions in the hospitals, mm-hmm. should be able to go down as soon as ERs start giving, like – just like um, I'm blanking now, Traxon is is um, what's what's the what's the drug given for opioid to reverse opioid? Um, oh, you know what I'm talking about. It's not uh, Traxon, but yeah. there's a brand name I, anyway. It should it should be Narcan. Narcan. Yeah, Narcan. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So ketamine has this reputation for instantly reversing suicide uh, intentions not just reversing it but actually people are like really want to like live you know as long as you know as long as the effects are there so for me um like many people who've had who've been in treatment for depression for more than a couple of years i experienced uh, what my psychiatrist referred to as a pooping out of mm-hmm. you know the, the SSRIs, you know, so he's like some people take these for six months and then they they poop out on like it just stops working. 
the, the first line and second line, Lexapro, Wellbutrin, Abilify. You know, it, it's, they stop working. So what do you do? You, well, you've got to try another one. That's a three- or six-month experiment. After, after experimenting with the dosages? Yeah. Of the, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. After, after getting up to the maximum or whatever. Right. So And then maybe combining them, SSRI with an SNRI perhaps. Yeah. And often, as you pointed out, treatment-resistant depression is what is typically you, you know, ketamine is used for that, for, mm-hmm. for people who've tried kind of all the combinations several mm-hmm. years. I, you know, I'm skipping a couple steps here. I'm not at the point where I, I had been at the point off of Wellbutrin. Wellbutrin has got me uh, able to stop some of the cascade of thoughts where I would not really think that tomorrow mattered. And that's that's scary, right? That's like mm-hmm. you can see the smoke on the horizon, like the fire's coming, right, and the suicidal fire. And so you know, I flirted with that for like a couple of weeks head on. And I was like, mm, I smell the smoke. I see the fire. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got to get a better dose or something, right? And so Wellbutrin for me has been successful at keeping the fires. I don't even know where it is now. Right? I don't know mm-hmm. where it is. However, as a, as a very sensitively trained therapist, I recognize something's going on. I don't know where a lot of things are. Not just has the fire gone away. So the, the pressure of negative emotions but kind of it's it's dulling and numbing kind of all emotions. And so I'm like, oh, man, there's got to be something else. Is there something else that can help me um, work through some of these polar? I call them polarities. We call them polarities in IFS, right? Parts of us that are in conflict. Some Something that will help me deal with seeing my parts more clearly. Because when I do this work and I start to look at the conflicts that are creating the depression, like part of me that wants to please others, mm-hmm. part of me that wants to just do what I want to do, fly airplanes, um, I get blocked. I get blocked by some of the physiological stuff that we were talking about earlier, this this disorientation. So I said, well, hey, this is available. It's well-documented. It's safe. Ketamine is safe. Why not just You're ask for it? You're doing it under the care of a licensed uh, physician, which is which is what I did. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I, I said to – I was a little nervous. I, I told my therapist, I said, I, I, I'd like to jump to this next step. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of felt like everyone would maybe say this is premature. Why don't you get more suicidal first? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll turn the news on. All right, see you later. I'll call you back. Um, I didn't want to do that. And so I said, I, I want to do this now. And he said, uh, okay. I'm like, you know, what is he, he going to say? I said, I would talk to my psychiatrist, who's a very progressive, kind of, you know, cutting edge, like looking at, he's a guy that, you know, some psychiatrists are older school and, mm-hmm. you know, he's into nutraceuticals and like all the latest research on psychiatry. I said to him, what do you think? He said, it makes perfect sense. He said, it makes perfect sense that you'd consider this. Why don't you do it? So then I did the assessment with the clinic. It's an interventional clinic. So you, for people who aren't aware of it, um, the, uh, the FDA has given a, an approval for ketamine treatment for suicidality and it also that that approval has freed up doctors to feel comfortable with off-label use. So this is technically off-label use. You know, I'm not suicidal. 
um, but they're comfortable with with the FDA's approval to to, mm-hmm. to give this. So uh, that has given birth to, or that has stimulated this explosion of providers, anesthesiologists, nurse practitioners, psychiatrists, who now are just offering ketamine and whatever else you know, vitamin mm-hmm. C or something, you know. <laughs> And you're talking about ketamine infusions or microdosing yeah. nasally? Yeah, it's an IV. Mm-hmm. So That's an, what I did. Yep. It's an infusion which is shown to be the most effective. They have Janssen Pharmaceuticals um, has come out with something um, called Spravata, which is a nasal, uh, nasally administered uh, S-ketamine, ES-ketamine. And uh, that has a, you know, the it doesn't get absorbed as as good. As the IV, obviously. So the IV is sort of the gold standard. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a little nervous, but I'm also excited. Yeah. I'm excited mm-hmm. to see what it will unlock for my already in progress kind of work on myself. Like, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I <laughs> think it's definitely worth uh, in investigating because uh, a former guest of mine, Fred Stoller, uh, raves about it mm-hmm. it uh, helped lift his depression um i know it works for for a lot of people um that one of the things that uh i experience when i use uh, psychedelics i i don't use them anymore um but you know before i got sober and when i did the 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 ketamine is Patterns reveal themselves, sometimes just nonsensical patterns. You know, for, for me, one of the uh, sessions I had, uh, this pattern <laughs> was number nine, the Beatles and waffles. <laughs> Obviously, the Beatles had already done something with number nine, so that wasn't a big connection. But um, I woke up thinking, oh, my God, I never saw the connection between the Beatles and Waffles yeah. before. <laughs> Thank goodness. I couldn't tell you right now what that was, but it's um, in addition to, because you're blind, I was blindfolded, yeah. um, laying on a cot, very, very comfortable, uh, very quiet. Uh, and in addition to seeing visual uh, hallucinations, uh, it was... It was almost like when you when you see clouds billowing visually, it's like like billowing cl- clouds uh, like coming out of nowhere and billowing and changing into something else. It was like a constantly connective, changing landscape, both visually and uh, in in terms of my thoughts about things. Yeah, uh, and. It you know it's certainly pleasant. Uh, I know psychedelics can, in, in my experience, backfire, and you can get you know terror and and, and other things, and that's why they check on you. And yeah. you started a really small dose, right. but I didn't experience any negative effects um, when I did that. So the sessions themselves were certainly pleasant and and entertaining. Afterwards, I felt a little woozy. Uh, you know, I Ubered home because yeah. you don't drive yourself. Yeah, you're a little uh, you're a little buzzed. Yeah, but I did not find myself longing to do it, feeling like I got to get more of this. It was not addictive for me. And and after the five sessions, I was like, this didn't work for me. Um, you know, and and so 
do do you think that you should have done like like follow ups monthly? Like, because I've seen if stories. it had worked, oh, you I were, would okay, that makes sense. I would have done follow ups, yeah. and I know that's oh, a yeah, normal yeah. thing is yeah. that people go in to kind of get, uh, you yeah, know. that makes sense. But because it didn't work after five, I just didn't. Uh, yeah. I didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's you know we're we know so much more about this now, but we also still we're just we don't know shit about why this works and right. why it doesn't for some. I have a friend colleague who's um, doing the doing the research on MDMA mm-hmm. with the FDA, getting you know got the FDA. He got the F. Michael Mithofer got the FDA. Is that the same thing as Molly? It's ecstasy. So right. what is Molly? Uh, ecstasy. It's that okay? Yeah. Same okay. Yeah. So yeah. I want yeah. to try to sound hip. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, you rapped in a Christian group. <laughs> we weren't doing Molly before going on stage to yeah. talk about Jesus. I think that's yeah understood. We, we were high on Christ. Yeah. Um, and one of the girls in the group was named Molly. <laughs> <laughs> MDMA, psilocybin. They're they're different. Ken, you know, ketamine has a it has a sort of a class difference. You know. And what they're, what my understanding is, is that, you know, so when you take an SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, so that's working on serotonin, you could take a neuropronephrine reuptake inhibitor. Those are the two major classes mm-hmm. of antidepressants. But ketamine acts on glutamate, which is responsible for every single, every single interaction in the brain. Really? Yeah. So as opposed to serotonin, which, you know, works on um, sort of feeling good, feeling like, okay, everything's going well, mm-hmm. right? Um, some of the dopamine ones, you know, like if somebody is taking a Adderall or a Ritalin, that's hitting the dopamine, getting mm-hmm. them more motivated. And, um, and, and so glutamate is responsible for every thought. And so what they see happen in the brain is this plasticity which only happens in, normally when we're kids, mm-hmm. in the glutamate, uh, what they call rafts, which literally is like a vehicle. Uh, it's a raft. It's glutamate moves from this to that in a, in a little raft, right? And as we get older or as shit happens to us, the raft gets heavier, literally. Like it gets clogged with extra glutamate. So this lightens that raft. You, know, they, you get ketamine and the raft starts like... Just getting lighter and more efficient at moving. Yeah. It's crazy. But it's not. Actually, it's really not crazy. It's really awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm excited about it. But I'm also, um, I think, sort of, what's the right word? Um, You know, have a normal sort of pessimism about it. Like, I'm not, you know, you're not, this is not a miracle. This is is another tool. Yeah. Just like Lexapro is a tool. Mm -hmm. So... I'll have to let you know how. It goes. Yeah, please do, <laughs> please do. Well, buddy, I appreciate you coming by, and uh, we didn't even mention that you have three books out. Um, one of them is about marriage. Yep. Um, what are the other two about again? So I run a, I, I do a course called Mindful Marriage, and that's really the. It's a curriculum. So I wrote a curriculum uh, there. The other book is called Ten Myths About the Emotionally Unavailable Man. So that's a little, uh, it's a little, little tiny book. So I've done a lot of my writing on marriage and relationships. And so I teach a course, Mindful Marriage, and the curriculum is, is about how to, how to 
open up to curiosity like we were talking about mm -hmm. in relationship to someone else like with your parts how to get a hold of yourself before you get a hold of somebody else right in a relationship so yeah mindful marriage people can find that at uh, souloflifeshow.com forward slash mindful hyphen marriage or just go to souloflifeshow.com and look at the podcast there's interesting guests talking about mental health and all sorts of stuff uh social media are you on social media i try not to be no it's <laughs> good for you I mean, yeah i would say you know if you if anybody wants to connect with me go to souloflifeshow.com and you'll you'll find all this all the media stuff there cool yeah. buddy thank you so much hey thank you paul this was great really really glad we got to uh connect uh there's so many amazing therapists out there there's some shitty ones there's quite a few shitty ones but man the great ones are fucking life-changing carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car that's why every car we sell is carmax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer so don't settle find love at first drive and start shopping now at carmax.com carmax the way car buying should be okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Memorable Vacation Arguments survey. And uh, Baby Donkey's best friend shares, uh, My mom loves baby animals. There's a baby donkey that lives near them. And every time I visit, we drive by the baby donkey to say hi. We were on vacation in Ireland. And one day we visited a traditional farm, which was a self-guided walking tour of different farm structures throughout Irish history. My boyfriend and I were a little bit ahead of the rest of the family. So when we got to the end, we were surprised to see them waiting for us in the car. Turns out they had missed the turn for the petting zoo area where my boyfriend and I had spent some time petting baby cows, sheep, goats, bunnies, and of course, a baby donkey. My mom was visibly sad about missing that part of the tour, but there wasn't anything we could do. Hours later, we were driving in the car talking about something totally unrelated. There was a lull in the conversation and my mom, in a tone of voice that sounded like she was trying to be genuine, but was actually kind of angry, blurted out, I'm really glad you guys got to pet the baby donkey. No one said anything for a minute, and then we all cracked up, including my mom. I guess the whole time we'd been sitting in the car, she'd been stewing about missing the petting zoo. Nothing will push a family to its limits like a baby donkey. Oh, it's the family crusher. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey. Filled out by a guy who calls himself drowning in the rabbit hole. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. He says he was raised in a stable and safe environment. 
Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He says some stuff happened, but he doesn't know if it counts. He writes, I was molested one time by a family member when we were both young. I'm not even sure if it's really a molestation. They were four years older than me, but I was pretty young, nine or ten. Nothing else ever happened, and we have a We have always had a close, healthy relationship since. I don't hold it against them, but I also don't know if it had any effect on me in the long run. Well, you know, a couple of uh, uh, thoughts there. Um, That that age difference, you know, somebody who's pre-puberty and somebody that is in puberty. I mean, maybe your cousin wasn't in puberty yet, but four years at that age is kind of a big difference. That that was the age gap of uh, the guy in our neighborhood that uh, that touched me, and I never gave weight uh, to it until years years later. And you know, I think an important thing to remember is is somebody's culpability. You know, the the predator or abuser, whatever you want to call them, misguided person, whatever whatever label you want to put on them. Their intent doesn't matter in terms of us deciding to give help and to investigate what it is that we're really feeling. Because um, it's not a court case. It's about processing things. And I, I apologize if I sound like I'm on my soapbox because I say that a lot on the podcast. But it's a really, it's a really important topic and it's, it's not cut and dried. Uh, he is, says that he's never been physically abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, I was made fun of a lot as a child. I was always the smallest and shortest boy in my class. It never got physical, but there was a lot of name-calling and teasing, but not the teasing you get from friends. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? A couple of the people who had made me feel bad as a child later became fairly decent friends of mine through high school and beyond. Darkest thoughts. I grew up very Mormon, drank the Kool-Aid hard, did the two-year mission thing, and the only one in my, my family that no longer believes. Also the only one not married and that doesn't have children. I have constant existential anxiety. To go from being a part of a great universal plan governed by a loving God to not believing your life has any universal meaning is a hard pill to swallow. I just don't have a choice anymore. I've gone down the rabbit hole, and not only is there no coming back, but it's drowning me. I'm suffocating. I'd love to end the ever-present routines and bullshit, yet there's just enough beauty, humor, and intelligence to make me want to see what happens next. Um... That's a long way of saying I'd love to take just a little too much oxy and find troopies. Oh, buddy. Darkest secrets. I got blackout drunk one night and started making out with slash fingering the fiance of a cousin, one of my only non-Mormon cousins I could drink with, uh, in his house when he was in the same room. I heard about it the next day. She didn't remember it either. Haven't spoken to him since. Feel real shitty about that one. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I want to be totally dominated by a girl who is normally quiet and reserved. I never really tell people about this. It's really nice just writing it down here. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my friend just how much he meant to me. I never expressed just how deeply he had touched my life. He took his own life a couple of years ago. 
Well, I'm sorry to hear that. What, if anything, do you wish for? Romantic love. I put on a good front, and I'm all right alone, but I'm not. I long for that sort of emotional intimacy. And I also imagine that, you know, losing that community, um, when you were in the Mormon church, I imagine you feel a loss, you know, not necessarily for that belief system, but for that closeness of people. You know, there is nothing like the feeling of a shared goal, whether it's, uh, you know, something that you believe in or volunteer work you do or a survivor's support group. I don't know. Um, have you shared these things with others? Not really. I feel I need to keep up a show of strength because I tend to help a lot of my friends with their issues. I don't want to burden them with my own. I hope you hear how ridiculous that sounds. And yet it's so, I'm, I'm that way as well. I hate telling people that I'm not okay. Just the anxiety of what are they going to say? How are they going to receive it? Are they going to suggest I do something I don't want to do? Are they going to look at me with pity? I get it. I get it. It's so much easier uh, for a lot of us to say, hey, how are you doing? How can I help you? Than to examine what my own pain or struggle might be. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit sad, but it's also been cathartic. So it's been a useful kind of sad. I'd like to see a name, a baseball team named that useful kind of sad. I think they would have to be in the American League. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Stop wasting your time. Go out and find someone to love. Don't be scared of commitment. You're running out of time. Uh, and he would love to hear more episodes with ex-Mormons. You should listen to the episode from a couple of years ago with Aaron Woodall, W-O-O-D-A-L-L. It's a great, great episode and also about uh, buried uh, memories. This is uh, also from the Memorable Vacation Arguments survey uh, filled out by What's it to you, gender? I hardly knew her. And uh, they write, when I was 13, my family went on a two-week road trip vacation to the Midwest to Disney World. I might have read this one already. With several stops throughout the South. I was in the throes of teen angst and had been acting up the entire trip. At our beach, I have read this. I'm going to read it again anyway. At our beach hotel, my dad decided to confront me about my behavior, and I talked back as usual. It ended up with him backhanding me in this section of outdoor showers. We both heard a collective gasp and looked up to see that there was a beachside bar that had watched this whole incident. We both laughed to deflect. I remember going back into the ocean and wondering what it would feel like to be swept out to sea. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. This is uh, from the Shame and Secrets survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Munchkin1394. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Uh, she writes, My father's wife had me touch her, finger her, and she touched me, and repeatedly told me she wishes she could 
break me in. I was in fifth grade and a virgin. My father doesn't believe me and neither do my parents, which is why I no longer speak to them. Well, good for you for taking care of yourself and not tolerating crumbs. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, almost two-year relationship with this guy who took all my paychecks, choked me on the regular, and beat me. Thankfully, someone in a neighboring hotel room heard it and called the police. I pressed charges, and he did one and a half years and has seven years on probation. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, there's things that I'm grateful my stepmother taught me. Uh, in parentheses, my mother wasn't that great. And there's lessons my ex taught me I'm grateful for. I get mad, uh, honestly or honesty? I get mad honesty when I do something they taught me how to do, like putting bleach in sink water when washing dishes. Even though it's a positive thing that was taught, it's almost like they get a silent, you wouldn't know that if it wasn't for me, and I find myself wanting to find a new way to do it. Darkest thoughts. Scooping someone's we out with a hot spoon, LOL. Uh, I think there might be a typo in there. I'm not sure what scooping someone's W-E out with a hot spoon means. I don't know why, but I've always wondered what it would be like. Uh, darkest secrets. Every time I drive across a bridge, I want to yank my steering wheel and drive off. The times I've had suicide thoughts have been while driving. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Bondage. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. Kind of weird. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my stepmother, thank you for taking away my innocence. Thank you for somehow tricking me mentally that sex is wrong and I shouldn't enjoy it. Maybe that's why I like bondage, because I can't physically stop it, and maybe it'll force my body to enjoy it. What if anything do you wish for to not fuck up my daughter, to not unload all my flaws and bullshit onto her? Have you shared these things with others? <laughs> Maybe that should be in, in the marriage vow ceremony. And do you promise to not unload all your flaws and bullshit onto her? I do. Uh, have you shared these things with others? A little. My wife knows I've had suicidal thoughts but doesn't know how frequent because I don't want her constantly worrying or her to feel like she needs to stay with me instead of us divorcing because I'm, quote, always unhappy. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little relieved. I'll probably do a journal entry before bed. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Stay positive. I know it's cliche. But find something or someone to live for, even if it's your plant or your dog. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad that, that you've discovered the power of uh, writing. It, it's amazing. Sometimes the clarity and the catharsis we can get uh, just by having to form our feelings into a, into a sentence. And I never want to do it ever it's just it feels like the thought of going and journaling feels like somebody saying hey would you move these 500 pound weights across town <laughs> on foot this is from the fears survey filled out by Kay, and she writes i fear that i will act on the crush 
I have on the married judge I've practiced law before. We're also friendly outside of court, and he's flirty as fuck, even in front of his wife, and I daydream about him all the time. It's horrifying to me, but I cannot shake this crush. If I ever did anything with him, I don't think I could live with myself. I'm a very religious person, and this would undermine a huge part of my sense of self and also come with massive guilt for sinning. To be honest, it already does because coveting someone else's spouse literally violates one of the Ten Commandments. Even with all of that, I still want him. I have moments of clarity where I recognize that I probably want the idea of him more than the reality, but they don't do much to sway me. I really hope I get past this, but I'm terrified it's going to stick and haunt me and impede my ability to actually find an available partner. This is a special kind of hell. Well, thank you for sharing that. That sounds really difficult. Fuck. And to have it be where you go to work. Ooh. Hmm. This is from the love survey filled out by Honk If You're Lonely. And they write, I love listening to how vulnerable people are on this podcast, especially the people who fill out the surveys. It's given me courage to be more open and vulnerable in my therapy sessions, which has led to a good deal of emotional growth. It's also taught me that vulnerability isn't a weakness. It is simply the truth. Love it. That makes me feel so good. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman. I don't know if she put her real name here, so I'm just going to say her initials, uh, TC. She identifies as straight. She is in her 40s. Uh, what kind of environment you were raised in? Uh, she writes, hell. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, yes, and I never reported it. Uh, her father uh, sexually molested her. Um, she has experienced um, physical abuse and emotional abuse uh, from her mom. Darkest thoughts. As a young girl and teen, I was always sexually attracted to older men who appeared like father figures, and I would act in a manner to get their attention. It made me feel dirty but I was able to get their attention and it made me feel beautiful and wanted and loved. I also have had pornographic fantasies of fathers having dominating sex with their teen daughters and it is very disturbing for me because I know it is not natural and in truth it disgusts me. Yet it is though my body and my mind would betray me and find the thoughts titillating and seductive. My father ruined what could have been my growing into a healthy sexual woman darkest secrets. My deepest darkest secret would be that I have watched pornography specifically of women being portrayed as teens who are having sex with their fathers. I know that in our culture, pornography is often considered acceptable to an extent, particularly for men, is something that they, quote, just watch. But I am a feminist. I'm an advocate for those who have been abused, and I believe that pornography is the objectification of human beings and is a slippery slope towards objectifying human beings in real life. I'm disgusted by it, though I am relieved to report that it has been some time since I engaged in watching it. 
Uh, fantasy is most powerful to you, as described earlier, the father-daughter thing. Uh, I find it appalling, disgusting, and perverse, but sharing it anonymously here is helpful for me because listening to the podcast has been so helpful, and it's my hope that in my sharing, others who have the same burdens will know that they are not alone. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my father, why? What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace of mind and the ability to eventually forgive my father and others in my childhood who were abusive to me. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared the deeper things with a wonderful priest who is my confessor and has provided me with wonderful and empathetic support. My faith is very important to me and at the center of my healing, so talking with him has been very helpful. He does not judge me. How do you feel after writing these things down? Strange. I worry that some people may hear this if it's read on the podcast, and it might be titillating for them. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not defective. You are not your sexual urges or desires, which were planted in your mind and memory network without your consent, and when you did not have the power to defend yourself. Considering what you've been through, your thoughts and responses are natural. Amen. A fucking man. Thank you for sharing that. This is a happy moment filled out by Arnold. Uh, and he writes, I went on vacation with coworkers to their cottage by the bay. On the last day, uh, I was the first one awake. I got dressed and freshened up and put a kayak in the water. Ooh, be careful. I realized as I was about 50 meters from shore that I haven't had a single suicidal thought since the first day I arrived. It was also my second week on antidepressants. I felt the love and acceptance all at the same time in the moment and broke down crying, alone, in the middle of the bay. When I was back, I saw my co-worker sitting at the table and felt genuine gratitude at the fact that I found a friend who genuinely cares about me while working at a chicken joint. I walked in, told an inside joke, and was happy to see a smile on her face. That's awesome. You had a very different experience in in the middle of a bay in a kayak than I did. Actually, we were in a canoe. But uh, thank you for for sharing that. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a a non-binary person who refers to themselves as fried pickles up the wazoo. Well, if you're going to have fried pickles, you got to. You got to have them up the wazoo. Uh, they identify as asexual. They are 17. Uh, they were raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. They've never been sexually abused. Um, they have been physically, uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not sure if they've been physically or emotionally abused. I would say you've absolutely been emotionally abused. Uh, they write, my mom has never intentionally tried to hurt me, but she does so many things that come from a place of ignorance that really hurt. I'm transgender, and she doesn't use my pronouns. Every time she uses the word she, it feels like a punch to the chest. My first clear memory of her consists of her saying, you could stand to exercise more while standing at my naked third grade, staring at my naked third grade body in the mirror. Oh, that's so Now I shudder when she touches me. I don't know where it comes from. (laughs) I don't think it's any shock where it comes from. Uh, I just know that it feels deeply invasive and unsafe. When I was younger, she used to touch my legs without permission to tell me when I needed to shave. She's quick to tell me that I don't appreciate her and that I'm only nice to her when I want something. 
I wonder if this is true. It sounds like she's projecting because she sounds like a fucking narcissist. It makes me feel dirty and manipulative. She's lied to doctors by omitting our extensive family history of mental illness, and I think it hurt my chances of getting the help that I needed. She's projected so much stigma onto me about therapy. I hate her for that. I believe her when she says she loves me, but I also believe that she doesn't know how to love. She doesn't know what love looks like. She hides her emotions and doesn't know how to handle conflict and is often angry for no reason. And because of her, I'm basically the same way. I'm scared of becoming like her, and I think that if she really loved me, she would validate my gender and take care of her own depression so she could be present for me. Any positive experiences with abusers? I remember the days when my mom would rub my temples when I had a headache. I remember feeling safe in her arms. She would hold my hair back when I had a stomach bug and bring me breakfast in bed. It could be so tender and caring when I was sick. She makes wonderful cakes and always lets me lick the bowl. She always lets me stay home from school when I want to and never forced me to eat if I wasn't hungry. She told me once that she only really wants me to be happy and healthy, and I believed her. Now she does pay for yoga and therapy and medication for me. It complicates how I feel, and I don't know how to feel or know whether I want to have a relationship with with her when I grow up. Darkest thoughts. I live near the mountains, and sometimes I want to go driving up there and take the turns fast enough that I tumble off a cliff. I imagine what it would feel like to be weightless for a second before being crushed like a bug by the car's metal. I think about if someone would put a sign or flowers up where I drove off. I think about the pain my parents would be in if I died, and it satisfies some sick revenge fantasy, imagining them finally realizing how much pain I'm in. Additionally, I think about doing things to intentionally sabotage my full-ride scholarship, like selling or doing hard drugs or getting arrested for vandalizing a car or something. I would only commit one crime, something just big enough to take away the one shot I have of getting out of this house. Darkest secrets. I used to cut, I do it rarely now, and I have deep scars on my right thigh. I love my scars and take pride in them, even though I know that is so fucked up. I use a weed pen to get to sleep probably twice a week. I never get very high and I'm very responsible about it, but I'm so terrified that I will be randomly drug tested and have my scholarship taken away. I've also been catcalled and harassed in elementary school. A group of older men pulled up next to me as I was walking home and shouted things at me that I can't remember. I'm worried this permanently fucked me up in some way. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Mom and Dad, I really don't know if I want to talk to you once I go off to college. I don't know if I want to come home for the holidays. I know this will make you angry. I know you won't have any idea why, but I need some years to myself, even if it comes at the expense of losing your financial support. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I didn't shame myself so much for being unproductive. I wish I could take testosterone and get top surgery to validate my gender. I wish I could look in the mirror and not feel so dysphoric. Even though this is such a fucking cliche, I just want to be happy. Not happy, but able to handle life's ups and downs better than I do now. I want the same for everyone else, no matter what they have done or what has been done to them. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's 4 a.m. and I filled this out because I couldn't sleep. I learned some things about myself. I feel uh, content, a little hollow, 
and kind of tired and hungry. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, please, please, please go to therapy or an affinity group or find support online. The gross, awful, uncomfortable five minutes it takes to ask for help and schedule an appointment is worth it. Your life has so much value and you don't have to do anything to be worthy of life, love, rest, and peace. Also, I forgive you. Wow. You sound like a uh, a really, really sweet soul. And I, I hope you find the uh, the life that you desire and the peace and all that stuff. But the fact that you know that help is out there and is possible uh, is fucking awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by gloom and doom on a lovely afternoon. And they write, I love when a dog, oh, I love this one so much. I love when a dog picks up a prized possession and runs off head held high like a total boss. It's <laughs> a fucking great one. I love when I'm getting ready to take Gracie out for a, for a walk or a skate and she starts going bananas and looks for either a sock or a shoe to come back and celebrate with by tossing it in the air near me. <laughs> and uh, finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Arnold. Again, I think we read one of Arnold's uh, previous surveys. And uh, he writes, I've been working, yeah, I've been working at a chicken joint, started working with a girl and her grandmother. Over the last year, they've become friends of mine, and I was invited to go on vacation with them to their cottage. The girl is very insecure and anxious and often jokes about killing herself. I tell her if she ever needs to talk, I'm always available and recommended counseling, but she says she's, quote, fine and only joking, but no one would miss her if she died. I try to help where I can and let her know she's an amazing person, but realize I am not the solution. This is not helped by the fact that the grandmother at times jokingly says she's plump or ugly. She is neither. Thus, you could imagine the thoughts that would go through her head. Needless to say, this happened again on vacation, and I saw some tears in her eyes, but she said nothing. Again. She does have support from friends and family, but the grandmother is seemingly overlooked by everybody but me. Little does the grandmother know I made a mental note of the cemetery that she showed us where she is to be buried. Odd, but we happen to be passing by. She said that she chose her plot because it was the on the edge of the cemetery and that the plot beside her was going to be bought by her brother. Guess who bought the double plot next to her and her husband's? in the cemetery. Me. I asked the granddaughter what she thought, and it made her laugh harder than I've ever seen her laugh with genuine tears of happiness and a face of joy and contentment. I told her that when I die, I will be buried next to the grandmother knowing that she would murder me if she found out it was me who bought a plot in the family's row. She, the grandfather, joked once that she was worthless and no one would marry her, so I offered her the other spot in the plot just so that we could have the last laugh against this old hag. She agreed, and we talked about her grandmother rolling in her grave during either of our funerals. Needless to say, 
the best $1,000 I ever spent. That is a fucking Hall of Fame. Arnold, you sound like a really, really great guy. And if you ever get to Los Angeles, if you hear this, I would love to interview you. So please email me. Um, I would, you just sound like such a fascinating, sensitive guy. Um, yeah. So contact me. And then I'll blow you off and you'll get depressed. How's that? How's that crappy, Arnold? You can show me how to kayak. Actually, why don't you go right to the source and show my girlfriend how to kayak? It will help our relationship. Or maybe you don't want to help us, Arnold. Maybe you want to be selfish in your cemetery, buying up plots, ruining the, ruining the dreams of grandmothers who just just mean well. But seriously, shoot me an email. You can do it through the website. Uh, well, there you have it, episode 606. I hope you guys got something out of it. And uh, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that help is, help is out there. And uh, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.